Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. As you're seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 807. We began this month with an emphasis on stewardship and really in preparation for this day. Uh, October has been a busy month for us and we've had uh, multiple events and opportunities and that has given us opportunities for guest speakers. So uh, we had the president of uh, the Institute for Creation Research a couple of weeks ago. Last week we had Pastor Jeff Estes uh, who had spoken for our men's retreat and really a, a excellent emphasis from both of those in preparation uh, but with our, our special emphasis and desire to be debt free by the end of 2023 I wanted to return to our, our, our focus on, on stewardship. As I've mentioned, Tri-City is a very giving church, and that, that is a tremendous blessing. And in, in some ways, from a pastoral perspective, it makes it easier to preach on stewardship. But I also realize that it's also easy then because of the generosity of our church for people to kind of get lost in that. I don't know what anybody gives unless they tell me. I don't ask. I don't count the offering. I don't want to know. But understanding that stewardship involves far, far more than simply what we do with our money. It, it really is what we do with our life. And this is an important topic. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about stewardship and particularly about financial stewardship. Uh, a person's relationship to their material things. I, I mentioned early in the month that 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told spoke of how we handle earthly treasures. You know, people spend a lot of their time thinking about money, how to get it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it. And when it comes to giving, it's, it's awfully, often a thing where we feel pressure. That, that is not the, our desire at all, to make it a guilt-motivated. You know, money, money is one of those areas that brings pressure. Money is one of the top five areas of conflict in, that arise in marriage. And, and often we, we bring this up in premarital counseling, helping prepare, but it's one of five areas. In addition to money in no particular order, the other four areas of conflict are communication, in-laws, intimacy, and children. And I find in counseling that often those interact. That parental, the, the, the problems in marriage, that it's not just one of those, but they get really complex and recognizing the, that it creates complications. And so our desire is really to understand finances biblically. And the foundation of stewardship is a, a life of, of surrender. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. That was where we began the month. To offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice, and that's really a supreme act of worship. We saw this in, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. That we are to present our bodies to God as a holy sacrifice that's alive. And that's our reasonable service based on his mercy. And so that's how that chapter begins. I, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself. And it's easy to surrender a part when we've already given the whole to the Lord. If we will surrender our will, then we can surrender our wealth. 
That's why we sing the song sometimes, take my life and let it be, before we sing the verse, take my silver and my gold. Because if God doesn't have our life, then it's going to be a struggle. The second thing that we looked at was the focus of stewardship was really the glory of God. We saw this from 1 Chronicles, that, that your personal adoration for the Lord will cause you to give for His glory and will encourage others then to serve Him as well. And, and we look, looked at the, the illustration, the example of David, that when he wanted to build the temple, he wanted to build a house for the ark of God, and God told him, no, you can't do that. And rather than getting frustrated when God said no, David redirected his energies to provide for his son Solomon to do that. And with God's no came God's grace. God said, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And that house was not a physical house, but it was really the advancement of his kingly line. And so the temple became known as Solomon's temple. But Jesus, the Messiah, came from the house and lineage of David. And that was the grace of God. And that brings us to what I want us to consider this morning with the fulfillment of stewardship. And I want us to see that, that when our life is surrendered as an act of worship to advance the glory of God, then we really find the joy in investing for eternity. And that, that kind of a knowledge is not motivated by guilt. Our desire, my desire is not to have guilt-motivated giving. Now, if you feel guilty because of the Holy Spirit's working, that's actually part of God's grace. Unsaved people don't feel guilt when they're not in the right relationship with God. And so we, we don't want to just discard that, but we don't want it to be manipulative. And unfortunately, that can happen. Years ago, my, my grandmother, when she was still alive, told that her and a friend were traveling one time, and they stopped at a church. They were, were traveling on a Sunday. They stopped at this church, and, and, and the pastor got up and talked about how they were needing to take a very special offering. They had an immediate need in the church, and they had a certain amount, and it wasn't very much. But they said, we have to have this amount right now. And my grandma and this other person that was with her, they, they felt, you know, we want to help them out. God's blessed us. We want to help. And so between them, they put in that amount. And they brought the offerings forward, they, and the, they counted it, and the pastor got up and said, you know, that was a good offering, but we're still several dollars short. Now, that's manipulative. Because my grandmother knew they had put in the amount they needed. That, that's really doing the work of the Lord deceitfully. And that does not honor the Lord. And what I want us to see this morning, that is, as we grow in the realization of God's grace, what that means to us personally, we actually de delight in using our material resources to advance an eternal purpose. And in 2 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit directs our attention to a wonderful example of generosity. It's demonstrated by the churches that are in the region of Macedonia and, and their desire to help others. And Paul is holding them up as an example to the, the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had some issues. If you've read the first and second Corinthians, you realize this was a church that was struggling spiritually. There were cliques within that church. And they would claim, well, we're of this group or that group. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and then the hyper-spiritual group were of Jesus. And that was what was going on in the church there. There, there, there was self-indulgence taking place. There were other sins. And, and the immediate context of this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 speaks of a specific collection. 
It was a collection being made by the Gentiles in Macedonia for the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. There was great persecution and great need in Jerusalem. And here you have these Gentiles in, in Macedonia and Achaia that are wanting to help them. That's the context, but the principles are applicable for today as well. So while it was a specific offering, the general principles can help guide us. If you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In these verses, what I want us to see, as we've mentioned, is that as we grow in the realization of what God's grace means, and we'll find that verse or that word grace used multiple times in this passage, as we grow personally, we delight to use what God has entrusted to us to advance an eternal purpose. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and, and he's encouraging them to continue what they've begun. It appears that they'd started this offering, and, and then it, it had, apparently, they've lost heart. Verse 10 actually speaks of that. We stopped at verse 9, but, but it seems that they've, they've lost heart concerning this financial project that they'd begun, and so before bringing them back to that, he wants to introduce them to the churches at, at Macedonia and their generosity. And it doesn't appear that it was the size of their gift that has impressed Paul. You know, when we, when we read of David's giving, we were impressed by the abundance of his generosity. I mean, they, they were measuring gold. We could measure it in tons at that time. And, and you know, it's astounding to us. That, that doesn't seem to be the, the attitude here. It's the spirit of giving. It's, it's the heart of sacrifice. And he highlights the joy that came from their giving with that sacrificial spirit. What I want us to see this morning is the joy in giving. And there are several ways this comes. The first thing is the joy in giving provides an example of God's grace to other believers. That's what Paul is telling them. He's saying, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. And it was bestowed on these other churches, the churches in Macedonia. Now, to give you the geographical context, because we, we sometimes hear these, these terms, these places, and it means nothing to us, that the, the Mediterranean region, the Mediterranean Sea, and the area surrounding that is what we're looking at. The, the circle there on the screen is, is circling Jer Jerusalem, so you kind of get your bearings. 
But what I want us to look at is the area of Macedonia. That's up where we would see Italy, Greece, and the, the, there's a box that, that shows you that is the area that we're going to be considering. And so this is the area that Paul is referencing, and the church at Corinth is there as well. And, and I want us to see that what had happened was Paul was trying to serve the Lord, and he, he received what we refer to as the Macedonian vision. A man from Macedonia saying, come over, help us. And so he immediately goes, and if you read Acts chapter 16 and 17, you find that now there are churches planted and these churches were born in adversity. The first church planted in the area of Macedonia was at Philippi. And that's the red box. And, and you see that, and one of the charter members of that church was a Philippian jailer. And Paul reached him with the gospel after Paul and Silas had been beaten. They'd been thrown into prison un, unfairly. And there's this, this earthquake and the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. And he comes and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And the gospel goes into Macedonia. And so you, you have that being the first church. And then the church at Thessalonica is planted. When they leave Philippi, they go to Thessalonica. There's a riot there as well. And Paul has to leave. And he goes to Berea. And that's the third box. Now, the, the circle is where the church at Corinth is. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, which is in that circle, and telling them about these churches that are further north up in Macedonia. But it seems that the adversity that had taken place when the gospel went into the area of Macedonia had really knit Paul's heart to the people there, and particularly to the people at Philippi. And, and he notes when he writes to them in, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, you were the only church that, that ministered to me, that supported me when I went on to Thessalonica. In fact, they, they sent aid to him more than once. And what you see is that this, as the gospel went forth, it was the grace of God that energized them. And it was the energizing grace of God that provided the motivation for giving. Now, while well, the collection of the offering mentioned was, was that benevolence fund for the believers in Jerusalem, the principles that we see are applicable because the God's grace is what motivates us. The, the Greek word for grace is the word charis. I have a granddaughter named charis. And that's the Greek word that is being used here, and it's used multiple times in this chapter. In fact, we see it first in verse 1. The grace of God is bestowed on the churches. But it's at least seven times in this chapter. They then implored Paul to receive the gift. The word is grace, charis. That's verse 4. Verse 6, that will complete this grace in you. In verse 7, we see you abound in this grace also. Then in verse 9, we, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the passage we haven't read, the rest of the chapter, verse 16, it says, but thanks. And, and again, the Greek word is the same word. It's the, the grace. That we're recognizing the grace of God in thanksgiving. And then saying, travel with us with this gift, their offering that was motivated by grace. And, and I stress this because, as I've mentioned, sometimes the giving we feel guilt that's not it at all. The joyfulness in giving is, is being motivated by God's grace, not by guilt. If you feel guilt, you, you're not really joyful. In fact, it says in chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. 
So, so give not out of necessity or grudgingly. Don't be mad, but be glad. And the reasons that we, we do this, and, and one of the reasons we have our offering while our children are in here is that example. Paul's saying, I want you to see these churches. They're an example. Tri-City is an example. I've had visitors that look at our bullet and say, you have a generous church. That's the grace of God. And, and, and that's how our children learn. What example are you to your children? You know, I learned to give as a child. I, when I was a kid, I got an allowance of 10 cents a week. I know, big money. I got a nickel and five pennies. And every Sunday morning, my parents would put that in a certain place and say, this is your allowance, and, and the first penny belongs to Jesus. And if you want to give another penny, you can do that as an offering. And I didn't realize that I was given 20% as a kid on my, my very small allowance. Now, I had very limited expenses at that time, too. But, you know, I was, I'm thankful that my parents taught me to give when I was a child. Because when I learned to give, it made it easier later in life. But what is our example to our children? What is your example to your kids? You know, if they give with the same level of sacrifice that you do, will, will the work of God be prospering? That's why we, we, we called it a sacrifice offering. Because we can't give equal amounts, but we can all give with sacrifice. And we want to be that, that example. Say, well, but you don't understand my circumstances. Well, that's the second thing I want to see. The joy in giving is not dependent on favorable circumstances. This is what verse 2 says, that with great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of liberality. In fact, we see that these Macedonian believers were facing severe testing. In both of Paul's letters to the, the church at Thessalonica, he mentions their affliction and suffering. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction of joy of the Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia that believe. There were believers, there were a number of believers at Thessalonica. We often, we often remember that the church in Berea was more noble than Thessalonica. Well, it was a specific group in Thessalonica. It was actually the Jews in Thessalonica that rejected the truth. The Jews in Berea studied the Scripture to, to see, is this really the, speaking of the Messiah? But there were a number of believers in Thessalonica, Gentiles, but they faced persecution. So when Paul writes to them in the second letter, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, and it's fitting for your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of, among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations, in your afflictions that you endure. And then verse 5 goes on and talks about how they're suffering this because they're following Jesus Christ. So Paul is using the church at Thessalonica as an example. The believers were persecuted for their faith. We, we don't understand the level of persecution that they suffered. I mean, the, the persecution in Thessalonica created a riot. And that's why Paul had to leave. And, and it was that hostility that per, 
prohibited him to going back to Thessalonica. In fact, he said, I I tried to come back and see you again, but Satan prohibited me. He understood this was a spiritual battle that was raging. And this was was not uncommon in the New Testament times. In, In Hebrews chapter 10, it speaks of a great affliction of believers and that they were made public spectacles because they were following Christ. And, and some of them were thrown into prison and anybody associated with them would also be persecuted. And it says they did it gladly. They were willing to lose their possessions to be identified with Christ's followers. And, and so if anyone had a good reason for their circumstances to, to not give, it was the people in Macedonia. And if persecution wasn't enough, they also faced great poverty. And that's, that's what we see, that it came out of their deep poverty. The word used there to describe their, their poverty is the, the Greek word bathos. It's a word that is used in Ephesians 4 to speak of the lower parts of the earth. We don't really hear that very often, but it has been used in our culture, the, the word bathosphere or bath escape, that that was a term that was used to describe a deep sea diving vessel. When I was growing up, there was a TV show uh, by Jacques Cousteau, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And, And while his ship was called the Calypso, one of the early vessels was the bath escape. And that's the one on, on the left. Then they got another one, they were a diving bell. But, but the idea was these can go deep down into the ocean. That's the word that's being used to describe the poverty there in Macedonia. It was deep poverty. This, this didn't mean that they weren't able to supersize their meals when they went to McDonald's. Or they had to order a tall rather than a grande coffee at, at Starbucks. Or they had the late model iPhone. No, these people were at the bottom economically. This was deep down poverty, down in the depths. And Paul says they wanted to give. It was out of that oppression that there was an abundant joy. In fact, what we see thirdly is the joy in giving is not based on personal prosperity. He says, I bear witness they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. He said, and we didn't pressure them. They wanted to do this. The, the, it was grace-motivated giving. It, it caused the believers in Macedonia to, to commit, to give even beyond their ability. I mean, their giving was really a step of faith. They were give, given their circumstances, they, they, they could have easily said, yeah, I can't do that. But they said, no, I want to do that. I want to give beyond that. And it was their determination. Now, let me just say, I find it interesting, there's no percentage given here. This would have been a great place to talk about what percentage. And and sometimes this question comes up. I think it would have been a fitting opportunity for Paul to discuss tithing or something similar. You know, I've already mentioned that my parents taught me to tithe. The first penny out of 10 cents belongs to God. And the tithe speaks of 10%. We find it first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. That's before the law of Moses that, that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The, the king of, of Salem. He gave a tenth of everything. Now, under the Mosaic law in Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 33, it, it speaks of tithing everything from the land to the crops to the fruit to the flocks. 
And if somebody said, you know, I, I really, that, that's one of my prized sheep. I want to keep that, even though it's the first one is to go to God. They could redeem it, but they had to add 20%. And so that was the, the tithe in Leviticus. In Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 through 32, and Deuteronomy 12, it speaks of another tithe going to the Levites to, for their service to the Lord. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, there's a tithe that would take place every three years that was for benevolence needs. So according to the Mosaic law, we actually find there were at least two, and I think there were probably three different tithes. So their average giving was, was about 23.3% per year. It was minimum 13.3. Now understand that at Mount Sinai, God established a theocracy. This was part of their government. So in, in some ways, it would be like some of the taxes that we pay for things going forward. But there was the giving that was for the sake of advancing the work of God. These funds would, would support the ministry, those dealing with spiritual needs, and, and then it would protect Israel as well from the consequences of their sin. Now, the New Testament makes clear that if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. So the, the, the aspect of meeting the, the needs of those who couldn't work, and, and again, we have benevolence funds for people who have needs come up. You know, I, th I think it's interesting when our government starts providing handouts to people who won't work and don't want to work, then our society breaks down. And we see that all across our nation in major cities. It's not they can't work, they won't work, and they're paid not to. The last mention of tithe in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 7. And it mentions, again, Abraham. So, so you have it before the law of Moses and after the law of Moses. Say, okay, so, so what does that mean today? Should we do less than the law? Does grace mean that God, we give God less? No, Jesus explained the law of murder and said, but if you hate in your heart, you've had a heart of murder. When he talked, you shall not commit adultery, he said, but if you lust after someone, you have a heart that's adulterous. And so it wasn't just the action, it was the attitude. Now, I say that because I personally believe that the tithe is a model, not a mandate. That I, I personally see giving 10% as the floor. I, I would want to grow to that if that's a struggle to say, that's where I want to be. And by the standards of the people of Macedonia, we are all wealthy people. We, we are not in that deep down poverty and in the culture to which this was written, to, to give less than that tenth would actually seem strange to them. But please understand, the issue is not a percentage, it's a sacrifice. What are we willing to do for the work of the Lord? And, and like I said, I don't know what people give, unless they tell me. But I learned at a young age that if I gave one penny out of ten cents, it made it easier to give one dollar out of ten dollars. But you know, it's still a struggle because we want stuff. I remember when I was in high school or home from college, I was in college, I was home for the summer, I was working for an insulation company. And we were installing insulation in attics and in, in various places. And, and the Lord had been working in my heart. And, and I, you know, I, was, I really enjoyed the job. I had to drive quite a distance, gave me a chance to, to memorize verses. And, and it was just a, a great opportunity. The Lord had worked in my heart and I wanted to give beyond the 10%. And I, I remember one week I committed, Lord, I am going to, by your grace, increase my giving, and I, I had a certain amount. I said, but it's going to be above the 10%, and I want that to be the case going forward. And that week, I, I received the largest paycheck that I'd ever had. And you know what my gut reaction was? 
Maybe I'll start next week. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe that was my immediate gut reaction. I thought, how selfish. I've prayed, I've committed, and God has blessed. And I want to say, but wait. And I repented and I gave. But you know, that was a lesson I had to learn. And I've seen in our lives, God has provided. And, and a lot of times, it, it wouldn't make sense on paper. But how do I know God will provide? By faith. And that's really what we have to look at. You know, it's so easy to say, well, I'm looking for a loophole. And folks, your, your giving is between you and God, but it's also between you and God and the missionaries that we support and the work that goes forward. And, and, and understanding it's not just about us. But we do want to commit to the Lord. And I find it interesting in Malachi chapter 3, God rebukes Israel for robbing him. It's like, well, that's really dumb to try to rob God. Number one, he's all-powerful. He can knock us into the next week. Number two, he's, he's all-knowing. He knows what you're up to. But he says, you, you have robbed me. And they said, how have we done that? And he said, well, in, in tithes and offerings. And then God said, and his challenge to them is not, and if you don't get right, I'm going to, you're in big trouble. He says, no, put me to the test and, and I will show you that I will pour out my blessings upon you and meet all your needs. Isn't it amazing that God in his grace, he could say, if you don't do this, you're in big trouble. But he said, no, test me, prove me, and I will meet your needs. And, and learning that, and then rejoicing in that. Because it comes not because of personal prosperity. The fourth thing, though, that we see is that giving, the joy in giving results by giving enthusiastically, not grudgingly. I find verse 4 to be fascinating. He's already talked about their deep-down poverty, and now he says, and they've implored us with much urgency that we would receive their gift. He, he said they, they wanted to give. They were delighting in giving. Like the, like the widow in the temple who Jesus commended for her heart in giving. She gave two small copper coins. Be like two pennies. And there were much larger gifts that were given. And, God, and Jesus saw that and he knew, but he also knew their hearts. And he says, she's given sacrificially. And that's why I think we have to prayerfully ask the Lord, what, what can I do for you? I, don't want to, I personally don't want to stand before God and have to explain why the cable company got more money than he did. That's just me. I, I, want, I want to see his work go forward. And the believers in Macedonia, were, they were begging. That's what the word imploring means. They're saying, Paul, are you going to take an offering? That, that was the abundance of their joy. You know, that's my goal for Tri-City Baptist Church. Not for selfish reasons, but that we would beg to give. And truthfully, we are a generous church. That testimony is a good thing. But we understand the joy of that. And you have experienced that as a ministry. And that recognizing that from a current and practical level, this kind of joy in giving proceeds from first giving ourselves. And that's the fifth thing that I want to see in this passage. That joy in giving proceeds from first giving yourself to the Lord and then to others. So as, as he says that, that they, they, want, they gave willingly, they implored us because they wanted to be part of this, but they gave more than we hoped. They gave of themselves to the Lord. That's where we began at the beginning of the month. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
Sincerity is seen in their sacrificial generosity. And, and like I said, it doesn't appear that it's the size of the amount that impressed Paul, but rather the spirit of their giving. They had given themselves to the Lord, and when, it, when God has our heart, then godly compassion develops. You know, if you claim to love God, but you don't love his children, you need to take a hard look at your faith. Because 1 John says that anyone who says they love God and hates the brethren is a liar. And that the way we show our love for God is when we love his children. And so we, we are willing to help and we want, and that's why they were doing this. And what is amazing about this is this is countercultural. What I mentioned at the beginning was these are the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia and they're giving to Jews that they've never met, but they know they're believers. That was countercultural then as it is today. Say, so, well, my culture is not like that. Christ is above your culture. And if you use your culture for an excuse, then something's wrong with your understanding of Scripture. That we need to recognize this. These were people who were saying, we want to help and, and we want to share and realize, folks, God does not prosper us so we can indulge ourselves. He prospers us so we can share with others in need. This is actually Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And the supply of their sacrificial grace, they desired to participate because they saw it as a way of fellowship, of ministering with other believers. That, that these Gentiles are begging Paul to give to the Jews. That really is countercultural. And these are poor Gentiles saying, we want to help. Folks, Christian fellowship involves sacrifice. That's why we call this Fifth Sunday Fellowship. It's not so you can have an afternoon and evening all to yourself. It's to sacrifice and spend that time with others. You know, sometimes the sacrifice is getting out of your comfort zone. Sometimes it's giving your time as a sacrifice. Well, I've got other things I could do. You know, I, we take time, I, I say it almost every Sunday evening after our service because we, we purposefully end before Awana is out. We want, want adults out so there's adult supervision for our kids. But I say take time for fellowship. Why? Because we want to connect life with life. Fellowship is about connection, life touching life. It's hard to fellowship if you don't spend time and if you don't spend time you won't have influence. It's very difficult to impact somebody else if there isn't that. Now, Tri-City is also a friendly church. But folks, let's make sure we're getting below the surface of the superficial. That's part of our sacrifice. That's why I said stewardship isn't just about what we do with our money. It's what we do with our life and our time is part of that. So we say, take my life and let it be. And then we can say, take my moments. Those 10, 15, 20 minutes that we can talk with somebody else. It was interesting in talking with, with Pastor Estes. He, they, they, they have a time of fellowship during their service. And he says, it, when, they, you know, when we used to do the handshake chorus, they, he said, it usually goes at least 10 minutes. It's like, wow. It's like, I'm not willing to give up 10 minutes of the preaching time. So don't worry. All you introverts can relax. I'm not doing that. But, you know, I thought, what are they trying to do? They're trying to connect life with life. Maybe we need to have it in the service so it's not just at the end and we slip out. 
But folks, it really comes from a heart that says, I want to give to the Lord and then to others. Paul's not measuring churches by their size, but really he's focused on their sacrifice. The sixth thing, though, that we see is that the joy in giving recognizes that giving is part of the personal spiritual growth. So he says in in verses 6 and 7, we've urged Titus that he will encourage you to continue this, but you're abounding in everything. He's not just saying abounding in your offering. He says in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, in your diligence, in your love, and in giving, this grace also. He said we want to see this in all these areas. We can't separate spiritual gifts from, from generous giving. You know, if if somebody says, well, you know, I I don't give because I work in a Christian ministry. I'm on staff. I I teach Sunday school. I teach in a Christian school. That's not an explanation. That's an excuse. Because we ought to be abounding in all these areas. How can I give more? Lord, I want to give my time. I want to, that's not my area, but I can give in this area. You know, the, the I gave at the office mentality misses the spirit of God's grace. Your giftedness of service is the Holy Spirit's gift to you, not your gift to Him. That we are given spiritual gifts when we're saved to advance the work of Christ in the church. So as as Pastor Dave talked about, church is more like an orchestra where if one part is missing, it's going to struggle. Are you serving? This is part of stewardship. See, it's not all about our money. That's where we tend to think. But we strive to be an example of giving and not provide excuses. That you're, we want to live in such a way that our life is that example. Someone said, you will never lead souls heavenward unless you are climbing upward yourself. Are you growing in faith, in speech? How, is your speech honoring the Lord, in knowledge, in diligence? It doesn't, it doesn't struggle, the, the struggle in giving come down to trust. Isn't that where we struggle? Well, if I give to the Lord, how will my needs be met? See, the battle of faith is to believe that God will do as He promised, that He will do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or even imagine. That my God will provide, He will supply all of your needs according to His riches. It's not His deep down poverty. Do I believe that He'll do that? The example of the Macedonian believers was they had set their minds on things above. And so they're begging Paul to participate in this offering. But there's another example that we see, and that's really what I want to see is the seventh point in this passage. It wasn't just the believers in Macedonia. The example now shifts to Jesus Christ. The joy in giving emulates the loving example of our Savior. And so Paul said, I I speak not by commandment. This is really to encourage, to challenge, to test your sincerity. And your love for others, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, yes, the churches are an example, but the greater example is Jesus. He says, Jesus delivers us from the bondage of money. You know, most people don't think they're in bondage to money. I don't think the rich young ruler thought he was in bondage to money. Until Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And that relationship with Jesus wasn't enough. His wealth was more attractive than being with Jesus. Well, how can I know that Jesus will care for me? Well, look what he gave in salvation. 
How do I know God will meet my needs? If he did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32 says, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? He's promised to supply all of our needs. Now, that doesn't mean all of our wants. But we see the specifics of example in, in verse 9. What Christ was, though he was rich. That's where it begins. He left the glories of heaven. The, the revelation describes the riches of heaven, the glory of heaven, and, and, and I don't think we can truly comprehend the majesty of heaven. But Revelation 21, 21 says that the street of the holy city is pure gold. I mean, the stuff that people work to collect and kill and steal to have is pavement in the new Jerusalem. You know, I'd love to see that asphalt paver laying the pure gold. Christ was rich. And it says, what did he become? He became poor. He took the form of a bond servant, Philippians tells us. And, and, and the word there is slave. He experienced a level of poverty that we will never know. In fact, when people were coming to him, he said, you know, the, the, the foxes have holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have the basic necessities. And understanding why did he do that, that through his poverty, we might become rich. Why did he do all of this? His giving was not done in a vacuum. It came from the love of the Father. For God so loved the world. You know, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Because part of the heart of genuine love is to give. True affection results in generosity. And that is what the Lord calls us to because of the example of Jesus Christ. That's why it begins with grace. It's really not about our money, it's about our life. And if you're here without Christ, you need to understand the gift of God is eternal life. You can't buy your way into heaven. There's no amount of money that can cover up for our sin because our sin is separated for us from God. But when we truly have that relationship, then our love will be demonstrated in our life and in our giving. So how is your love for Christ practically seen in your giving of yourself to others. It really is that life-touching life. Do you give? We, we encourage fellowship, but not just to, to talk about ball games. It's really to talk about Bible, to talk about life-touching life and how we can be like Jesus Christ. And as you grow in a realization of Christ's grace and what that means to you personally, then we really delight in giving of ourselves and giving of our stuff to advance the work of Christ and invest for eternity. Are we investing today? Let's pray together.